Ultimately, everything kind of boils down to one question. What's the fucking point? So, let's talk about it. I'm your host, Valerie Martin, and this podcast brings a little levity and a lot of curiosity to some of the biggest questions and ideas that us meager humans can ponder. Join me and our guests each week as we dig into topics around consciousness, spirituality, psychology, and philosophy, all with a healthy dose of existential angst. And now, today's episode. Hey, podcast fam, welcome back to episode number 20. And I am feeling very energetic this morning. I just finished a little dance workout. I can't remember if I had mentioned this on the podcast before. I feel like it had come up, it's come up in conversation recently. So I'm just going to pretend that I haven't mentioned it because I don't think that I have. But this is, and this is not an ad, this is just something that I am legit really loving right now. So backstory, I used to work out with my mom when she would do the Body Electric show on PBS in like the early 90s. It's like super cheesy because that was the era. And it was, you know, jazzercise-y, lightweight kind of stuff. Um, and over the years, I did all kinds of workout videos and then of course the streaming world came in and there's all kinds of things that I have experimented with and explored over the years um, and at earlier in that journey when I was um, in my eating disorder obviously I would use those things in an unhealthy way but in the past decade plus it's been more of a fun exploration of what kind of movement feels good in my body allowing myself to go through phases and seasons and I do enjoy and appreciate the benefit of going somewhere to, to move with other people. Obviously, I'm a yoga teacher. And, and I like going to in-person classes, but I also love the videos. Like I do the um, Gaia. Uh, my husband and I both do a lot of the, the Gaia videos. He probably does it even more consistently than me. And that's like 10 bucks a month, which is pretty awesome. So, um, but what I wanted to tell you about today is our, is called Our Body Electric or Obey, O-B-E with the little accent mark. And so it's like bringing the body electric into the new generation and kind of using some of that 90s nostalgia. Um, so there's a lot of like bright neon colors, but it's sort of, it's not like super obnoxious in your face. It's very cute. And they do these, they record the workouts in their little box studio in New York City. And during the mornings, there are like several hours of streamed workouts. So you can live stream with them and they'll call you out and be like, you can do it. And it's just really fun. Uh, or you can do any of the ones that they have kind of in the archives. So anyway, this morning I did a great one that was like a little dance party. It was so much fun. So that's my recent favorite discovery that I wanted to share with you. Other than that, what's been up is I went on a trip to D.C. to visit some family. That was fun. Ate a lot of great food. Um, saw the museum. I'm not going to get the exact wording right. I don't have it pulled up. But it's the museum, the Smithsonian Museum for African American Culture and History. And we only had three hours there, which was definitely not enough. But I'm still so grateful that we were able to go because it's kind of hard to get in. So um, it was incredible. I highly recommend going and <clears throat> definitely going to go back and plan ahead. So we have more time to spend in the, the history section of it. We got a lot of the culture stuff in. So... Also, I moved offices, and I'm only like a half block from where I was before, but I got to pick out all my furniture and decoration, and it was a ton of work, but I am loving my new space. I posted one little picture and um, some Instagram stories of my office, and I'm just super excited. So let's talk about our guest for today, because she's awesome. Um, Liz Delego is somebody that I started following on Instagram. She is local here in Nashville, but she kind of moves all over because as you'll hear in the interview, her she works remotely so she can work from anywhere. And she is smart, funny, beautiful, 
I just, so many things that I don't even have all the adjectives for right now. But you will hear in our conversation, and I know you're going to love it. So, um, Liz Talego is a writer, brand strategist, and freelance model living in Nashville. She writes about money, sex, women, and work at LizTalego.com, where she shares actionable, unfiltered career advice for the Me Too era. As a co-founder of Lean In and Ladies Get Paid in Nashville, Liz loves finding ways to empower and uplift her tribe in person and online. You can follow her on Instagram at immaculate.confessions, which I highly recommend you do. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. You were just mentioning before we push record that you spend a lot of your time in the summers, like in Montana. Was it Montana and Minnesota? Yeah. Awesome. So I'm super close to both my brother and my sister. My sister Emily um, lives in Montana, and I used to live in Montana uh, for almost 10 years. And then my brother Aaron, he uh, lives in Duluth, Minnesota. Mm. So because I work remotely, I get to escape the Nashville heat, which is really nice, and spend time with them. And I, you know, work through the day, but then have the flexibility to hang out with them in the evenings and on the weekends, and I don't have to physically be in one place, which I super love. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I'm going to go on a turtle, a turtle, a total curveball. It's just word combo. Um, because I just remembered when you mentioned your siblings, I remembered a story or stories that you had done several months ago with one of your brothers. Mm-hmm. You just have one brother. One brother okay. Yeah. With your brother about like having to navigate the political divide within a family. Yeah. So I'd yeah. love for you to tell us about that. So um, my brother and my cousin, uh, James, they both live in Minnesota, and they work for the railroad there, mm-hmm. and politically we are not aligned. So it just so happened that part of the time that I was spending there this summer, uh, Trump came to town. Mm. And so I had the opportunity to attend the rally, not as a counter-protester, um, but more as a, an observer. Yeah. And it was a really fruitful experience for me because um, it allowed me to explore a little bit within my own family, like how do we manage to respect each other and love each other and have this close relationship when we are so politically at odds. Mm-hmm. Um that piece has still not been published yet, but I'm working on it. Cool. Uh, a lot to consider. But what was really interesting for me was going around and speaking to counter-protesters and just kind of, you know, respectfully inquiring, do you have a politically diverse family? If you do, um, how do you navigate that? Because I've felt for a really long time, like, you know, the polarization that happens on Facebook, if that happens in our families, we're going to... Um, we're going to lose a lot of our strength. So yeah. how, how do we continue to communicate when we don't agree, essentially? Um, and I really didn't get great feedback. I, mm. I Most people told me that, you know, their families are all, you know, red or blue, one or the other. And wow. so I know I'm not the only one out there that has this experience. I'm, I'm definitely interested in continuing that conversation, exploration about how people stay connected when they're really different. Yeah. We could all use some time thinking about that. Right. I feel like there's a ton of conversation about it at the larger level, mm-hmm. about, like, we're so divided as a country. Right. But I don't, at least in the places that I'm listening, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I hear a lot of those conversations about, like, within a single yeah. family. And, and I do think there's certainly truth to that idea that there's a lot of families that are just, they're either on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. But I have heard from a number of clients similar situations and even even situations where it's like, this was the straw that broke the camel's back in yeah. some cases and, mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, ended some relationships. And sometimes if it's if it's more of like a, and then there was this, then, okay, maybe that was a relationship that was sure. going to end anyway sure. but or not be close. But I think that, that when there's a lot of good in those relationships, like it seems like there is with you and your mm-hmm. brother, that mm-hmm. sure is worth figuring that out. Right. And we're about to head into the holiday season. And I feel like there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek posts that happen about, you know, like the crazy racist uncle or whatever that you're going to go have Thanksgiving dinner with and how to, like, not get triggered or not be uncomfortable or how to respond to, um, you know, racism or homophobia in your family. Uh, and, and I get that that's, you know, it's shedding some light on some uncomfortable situations in a, um, a way that will maybe, maybe, maybe make people feel like they're not alone in having those situations. But I guess... I'm trying to take it, like you said, another level, like, you know, how do we not just leave those dinner tables? How do we continue to converse and learn and grow from each other? Mm -hmm. Because 
if you don't do that, we're going to continue to be polarized. Yeah. So obviously if someone's, you know, really abusive or offensive or in right. some way, like, you know, the relationship is not healthy. I'm not, I'm not talking about those situations, but ones where there, there is love, but just difference. How do you maintain yeah. those? So. Right. Yeah. And it seems like what's part of what's making it so difficult now more than ever with, you know, with Trump is that the conversation around race and gender and all of that, that it's like with the political becoming personal even more than it, it seems like than yeah. it ever has. Yep. So it's like, Ooh, okay. Like I, if, if, if we're different in these kind of more political things, I can't even think of great exa- you know, trade agreements or whatever, sure. then like, sure. But it's like, if you're going to like, I, ugh, yeah. I'm just thinking back to conversations I don't want to mention. Yeah, I <laughs> right hear you. And it, and it is, like, what we're talking about is not easy. It's so challenging, and I certainly don't, you know, propose to have all the answers. Um, you know, I'm happy to always talk about my experience with my family because I think we've, oh my gosh, it's taken us years yeah. to get to a point where I feel like, you know, we're solid in spite of some major differences. Yeah. Um, but I'm grateful that we took the time to you know, focus on the relationship and not let our, you know, political affiliations drive us apart. Right. And I know that you'll get into this more in the the piece that you write, which I can't wait to read. Um, but is there like a thing or two when you, when you think of that work that you've had to do together over the past few years, mm-hmm. um, does anything stand out that just feels like something worth mentioning? Yeah, I think for me... Um, you know, maybe I'm a <laughs> maybe I'm a little bit fortunate that the the conservatism conservatism in my family um, is not racially charged. Yeah, um, is not combative towards women in in an outright way. Now we can talk Good. about what the trickle down effects sure. of some of these uh, ideas are. Um, but my brother and my cousin work um, in a very different or they live a very different life than I do. I guess they're in a very blue-collar world, which is where I come from, and the work that they do. Um, Things like mining affect them in a very direct sense, for example. So that's not my experience day-to-day, and whether I agree with it or don't agree with it, like, they come to these types of conversations with a different experience. And it's not about whether I think it's right or wrong. For me, what's been um, helpful at kind of de-escalating any vitriol that I might feel towards them is remembering that, you know, their experiences, while they're different than mine, are completely valid to them. And their mm-hmm. truth is completely valid to them. And they are not one thing. Remembering that if a person voted for, for Trump, that doesn't mean that they hate all gay people or hate all, you know, ethnic minorities right. or anything like that. It's it's not that simple. And I get really uncomfortable with conversations that try to paint anybody with one brush. So, um you know, having good boundaries, I think, would be another one, but also yeah. just remembering that people are complicated and come from different backgrounds and perspectives and to try to lend them some respect even Yeah, you don't agree with them. Absolutely. Because I certainly don't agree, agree with them, and um, hopefully they'll listen to that. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, people are complicated about something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. And so you mentioned coming from a blue-collar background. Yeah. You also came from a Catholic background. Very much so. Um, so my dad was one of seven. Wow. And big... Polish and Ukrainian Catholic family, northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, I was the oldest of all the grandkids, 13 years of Catholic school, (laughs) (laughs) the whole gamut. Um, So that was a huge part of my culture growing up. And, you know, the majority of my family is very much still um, entrenched in that faith Mm -hmm. uh, while while I am not. At what point in your life did you start to question and start to drift away and kind of find your own path? Um, Well, to give you some context, um, I was a freshman in high school, at a Catholic high school, when the Boston Diocese scandal broke. Mm. And, you know, I'm a teenager, I'm already questioning everything and I know everything, right? (laughs) Um, So I'm already kind of like pushing back against my parents' uh, ideologies in in some significant ways. And I remember the morning that that scandal broke in in the newspaper, our principal, who was a priest, had had, I don't know whether it was the art club or whoever had access to the paint, um, paint in huge giant letters on the second floor of the building, Uh, in the windows, we support our priests and bishops. Mm. So I remember having this experience of having to physically walk into a space 
emblazoned with we support these men who have just been um, accused of hellacious abuse and wow. feeling like, well, I don't. You know, I, nobody yeah. asked me. I certainly don't. But yet I'm going into this building and because of that, um, I'm going to be seen as agreeing with or contributing yep. to. And I think that was a critical turning point for me where I didn't feel um, protected. I didn't feel safe with that type of rhetoric, kind of just literally mm-hmm. being in giant letters in my right. face. <laughs> yeah. um, but being, you know, still a kid, not really feeling like I had any power over it. And that to me was a huge source of like, Maybe I can't really trust this because mm-hmm. this doesn't seem right. Like my BS meter was like oh, yeah. really dinging on that day and it never really stopped. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like even if there might be beautiful aspects mm-hmm. to that tradition mm-hmm. and to some of the rituals and liturgies and all of that right. and, like, and, and ways of practicing it that I think can be more or less in alignment mm-hmm. with, you know, respecting all people and all of that, like, that experience, like, of course, no wonder you'd be like, mm, no yep, thanks. Yep, <laughs> yep. And that's been a, a hard road to navigate ever since because as other people who have grown up in, like, a strong faith tradition or ethnic tradition or some type of their, you know, part of their culture that they no longer maybe have access to or participate in, um, it's still a loss. Mm-hmm. And I definitely continue to experience, you know, parts of my life that I miss from my childhood and my upbringing because like I kind of alluded to when I was talking about like how to get along with my you know politically diverse family um you know the the experience of growing up in a strong catholic family was not all bad mm-hmm. you know there are like you were saying beautiful parts of that tradition and the ritual and um the closeness that shared belief brings um that I definitely find myself craving in different ways Cool. And so, let's see, there's two directions that I want to go. I'll pick one. Um, How did you then create something of your own where you didn't have to like abandon all ritual that actually felt good? Like, where did you start to explore after you decided that "Mm, this is not for me? Well, I tried to be really honest with myself. Um, about the good that I wanted to preserve from it. And in order to give myself permission to do that, um, I had to start with a lot of forgiveness, mm-hmm. um, especially given the sex abuse scandal happening at a time that I was young and really still being embedded in Catholicism. Um, there were some pretty deep wounds and resentment that for a long time governed how I thought about faith in general. Mm-hmm. And I think as I got older and I went out on my own and I, you know, got an education and, um, you know, actually started working in mental health and, you know, I gained a more diverse perspective and I was far enough away that I was able to look back and say like, okay, that experience was many things. And as an autonomous being, I do get to choose which parts of it I want to carry into my adult life. Um, But in order for me to gain that perspective, you know, space, time, and geography are all helpful in giving you space. But um, I think letting myself um, let go of some of the anger mm-hmm. and disappointment and resentment so that I could see more clearly what I wanted to preserve. Yeah, beautiful. And, and the other piece that I was thinking about was, so the, you know, all the sex abuse scandal in, in I mean, any church, but the Catholic churches that have been coming out over these years. Um, I was listening to one of Rich Roll's podcasts. I don't know if you've ever listened to his. It's one of my favorites. But he had somebody on. I'm not going to remember the name of the guest now. I'll have to link it in the show notes. But um, who grew up in, I believe it was the Catholic Church as well, and and then was gay. And mm-hmm. that, that did not go over well right. for him <laughs> or in his family. And, and he was talking about how, I'm sure not the first to talk about this, but I don't know that I'd ever necessarily necessarily put these two pieces together um, the way that he described it, of just the repression around sexuality and, and that expectation of celibacy. Mm-hmm. Um, what a setup yeah. to deny a person's human needs. And he was saying, like, by no means am I saying that this, like, is an excuse for any of these sure. people. Like, absolutely not. Sure. However, like, the Catholic Church really needs to take a look at that expectation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there's the celibacy among the priesthood. 
that's problematic. But even in general, the attitude around sexuality and suppressing sexuality, shame around it. So is that a piece that was overt for you? Like that was... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I actually like... I read a a quote or somebody said it to me recently that um, we should actually be thanking the church for making sex fun because had they not made it so scandalous, (laughs) had they not repressed so much, like we wouldn't be having as much fun with it as we do today, which is kind of messed up, but it's also kind of funny to me. But, but yes, to answer your question, um, very much at home, um, via my father and my grandmother, especially, um, it it was a very sexually repressive environment. Um, very much, you know, your body is a liability Wow. I can remember one of my teachers in high school uh, talking to the girls specifically and saying, you know, we were getting some type of lecture about, you know, we were probably rolling up our our skirts, as we did in those days. Um, And they were saying, those boys can't study their um, algebra if they're studying your geometry. So saying, so saying, (laughs) now let's unpack this for a second, saying, um, it's our responsibility to conceal our, you know, God-given shape. Yeah as they would define it, um, lest we interrupt our male peers' ability to access their education. Yep. So just by existing as a piece of flesh in the world, um, we have the ability to have the responsibility for detracting from someone's education. So the, And that was just, you know, a lighthearted right. example of that. Yep. You know, kneeling on the gym floor to make sure that our skirts went to the floor. And those nuns walking up and down those aisles to make sure that we were covered, mm. you know. And looking back, there are actually great things about wearing a, a uniform, just from yeah, a simplicity sure. sake. Like, I won't <laughs> say that it was all bad, yeah. but just um, boys' uniforms were not checked in that way for modesty. They were checked mm-hmm. to make sure that their shirts weren't wrinkled and they were tucked in and that their collars were pressed and things like that. Um, and that bestowed on me a real appreciation for, like, caring about uh, how you dress and your appearance and what that communicates. And I think that that can be a really positive thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very, very much overt, a lot of shame-based attitudes around sexuality and just, um, feminine sexual energy, especially. Right. That example reminds me of when I was in eighth grade, I, w- I was a cheerleader and, um, I, on game days, we would have to wear our uniforms to school. Right, right. And, um, you know, they're like little, tiny little skirts. And we were supposed to wear them all day long. And so my mom complained to the principal or whatever, saying that like, which, you know, at the time I just thought, mom, oh my God, you're so embarrassing. (laughs) But her point was like, okay, so it's not okay for girls to wear this stuff, like, you know, to wear a skirt of this length normally, but if it's a cheerleader and, you know, her job is to show off her body in this way, then it's okay. Right. Like, it's just, yeah. So now now I'm like, go mom. Yeah, but... <laughs> right on, right on. Yeah. And so coming from that repression of sexuality or, or the messages around sex, having this, like, cloud of shame over it, um, and knowing only just a little bit about the work you do now, maybe even telling us about um, that project would be a good segue into that. So something that I really, um, that became apparent to me early on that I struggled with was, um, you know, I was encouraged to, you know, get an education and to be successful in business and in many ways to be strong and to take up space. And as I aged into a more sexual being, I discovered that for me, um, being in touch with my sexual self and that part of who I was was this huge source of power. And people express that in all different ways. Some people never express it, you know, outwardly or publicly in the ways that I do. Um, It's just a private and internal thing, but I've found this like almost secret sauce of energy flowing within myself that I was really excited by, but then was met with this, oh, but you can't use that. Hmm. <laughs> like, you better take that out of the chamber. You cannot use that weapon. Like, that. that is not something that's okay for you to um, celebrate or express or to just um, really even acknowledge. Yeah. And I found that to continue to be true even as I aged into adulthood, and I just, it didn't make sense to me because I felt it in this very authentic way. Um and then coupled that with, it seemed that, you know, as I talked to other women about this stuff, especially women who were raised um, in more conservative or faith-based environments, 
they felt no longer at home in the churches or the you know cultural identity of their childhood if they were harnessing, embracing, um, you know, expressing any way their sexual strength, mm. even if it was just within themselves. And what a loss to to have to pay the price of well, I have to divest from um, a part of my identity in order to be welcome in what used to be my home in many ways. Yeah. And when I moved to Nashville, you know, I've lived in other parts of the South, but I remember feeling like, whoa, like there's still a lot of repression here. We're, uh, you know, we like to bill ourselves as a pretty progressive city, but if you, if you spend time here, you'll soon find that just below the surface is like, we're, we're in the Bible Belt. Yep. For sure. <laughs> and, um... A lot of the stereotypes about that have some truth. So, you know, I wanted to explore this idea of um, giving a voice to women like myself who felt silenced by embracing their sexual identity and who were mourning the loss of their religious identity in the process, (laughs) which sounds like a really vague notion. But um, out of that idea and the cooperation of a really... um, incredible and empathic male photographer, we were able to shoot a series of images um, and do a show called Sweating Like a Whore in Church. <laughs> and Love that title. we were able to gain access, I won't tell you how, because it was a miracle in and of itself, we were <laughs> able to gain access to First Presbyterian downtown, which um, your listeners probably don't know this, but it's a beautiful Egyptian revival mm. uh, 19th century church in downtown Nashville. It's, it's incredible. Um, and we were able to tell each woman's story in the way of her choosing. And when we took the pictures, it was very much like you get to express yourself however you want in this religious space, um, and be a sexual being in this religious space. So Mm. they were not pornographic, um, but they were powerful and sexual and in a religious context. And the crying wolf in East Nashville is a... They were great to us, and they um, they hosted us to do a show. And what ended up happening with those, we took the images, you know, printed, framed, and then hung them. And around each woman's portrait, she was able to write a narrative of her story um, about her religious and sexual identity wow. and what she had traveled through. At the same time, this was just, it was an incredible experience. We had um, a performance art element to it. Um, some people that I know that are connected to kind of the neo-burlesque scene in town were doing a um, a faith-based like kind of call and response religious themed burlesque show so, so we cool. had um, we had this like the performance art it was very like call and response and like this like this beautiful like um, you know dance and performance kind of in the vein of what we were doing and then we had um, the images and then the narrative storytelling part, um, lending context to those images. And it's, it's a little bit hard for me to describe, I think, the entirety of it and the emotionality of that experience um, just to you right now. But um, suffice it to say, it was by far, for everyone involved, the most moving piece of visual art that yeah. I've ever created. Um, oh. And my first stab at kind of doing the production and creative direction side of things and not just modeling and I would love to continue to do do work like that because for me you know it was my kind of like weird idea and I met people that wanted to play along but then you know having so many women and men come up to me afterwards and say like you know some of them in tears Mm -hmm. to thank me for sharing that perspective that you know you can be a sexual being and still embrace your cultural or religious identity like you're okay yeah and you don't have to hide that oh so yes yeah that's that's a lot (laughs) but but it was an incredible experience yeah and I know you shared um a little bit about that on Instagram recently which is like what got this conversation going is there do those live and any of those images live on your website um they don't on my website um I am thinking that maybe it needs to see the light of day again Mm -hmm. though and I am 
anybody listening knows of a venue in Nashville or just in the southeast in general that would be interested in hosting something like that I don't know if I can give as many layers I don't know if I'll be able to get a a performance art component to it but um, I do know that the people that participated in it would love you know beyond me would love for it to be shown again yeah yeah that's amazing so connected to this I know one of the um terms that you mentioned related to this topic was the modesty trap mm. and I don't know what that means so, <laughs> so educate us um well have you heard of purity culture yeah okay so yeah. it's kind of you know within that realm um very much for me growing up and I think a lot of people can relate to this um there was no discussion the way that it was was that if you were going to get respect, you had to be modest. Mm -hmm. In order to be taken seriously, um, you had to be covered up. And that for me was evident, you know, just like in the school uniform piece and the cover-up, you know, can't study their algebra if they're studying your geometry type (laughs) thing. Um, And it is another thing that I came into to really question as I aged into my body and into my like I said, sexual identity, this thing that I felt like was such a powerful, beautiful thing, I I didn't like feeling like it was a liability. Um, and so when I talk about the modesty trap, I think it is that idea that in order to be respected, you must be modest. Mm-hmm. And that in order to get a promotion, you need to, you know, maintain a certain, like, appearance within your professional environment. Of course, I'm all for, like, professionalism and giving women the you know the opportunity to express themselves in in a professional way whatever that is for them but I still have found that there are some pretty rigid guidelines in our culture and in the workspace um, that are very much um, modesty traps right and it seems like this double-edged sword I don't even know if that's the right term Mm -hmm. but like how in one respect, if you were to see like a Marissa Meyer or like some type of like, you know, Fortune 500 female executive, mm-hmm. Sheryl Sandberg or something, um, wearing something like more revealing, less modest, they would probably get a lot of shit for that. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, if they had done that earlier in their careers, may not have ever mm-hmm. gotten as far as they did or even if they got close, people would have said, well, it's just because da-da-da. Right. So there's that side of it. But then there's also, like, the, you know, I'm thinking, like, the sports commentators or the news um, reporters who are, like, have to wear these skimpy little outfits because they're on display. And, mm-hmm. like, for them, it's probably not a choice. So it's just a mind fuck. Absolutely. I really feel for people who are raising young girls right now. Ugh. No kidding. <laughs> uh, because we're, you know adult women with plenty of resources at our disposal and we're still sitting here saying like fuck how do I navigate this yeah and I think it's just a legacy of for so long we've been both reduced to our sexuality but shamed for it at the same time there it is yep yeah and when you are in that space there you you cannot win Mm -hmm. you you cannot win. double bind it's absolutely a double bind and I think a lot of times when I have these conversations, you know, people get a little bit uncomfortable because they think that I'm saying, well, you know, free the nipple, the end, (laughs) (laughs) which is not, uh, which is not my point. I think my point is just to say like, like, wait a minute, um, does my body make me less hireable to you? Do I need to cover up, um, my shape to be respected? Do I need to be, um... You know, do I certain sexual behaviors off the table for you to consider me, like, an intelligent, respectful person? Like, right. like I just want to ask these questions. Sure. Because I think a lot of times we just go through life, you know, trying to get through our day, and we participate in them. Mm-hmm. And we uphold and uplift them without meaning to because we fail to ask these questions. Yeah. I think, um, I'm glad that we live in the Me Too era. Yeah. But I often feel like there's a lot of buzz and a lot of hashtags, but not a lot of guidance around, okay, well, what do you and I do on our average Tuesday Mm -hmm. to change the situation, even in some small way, because that's what we've got to do. And I think, you know, asking some of these questions and and having conversations like the one we're having are are good ways to start. Yeah. Right. And, And I feel like it's just, 
it has to be done. This conversation has mm-hmm. to be had now more than ever at, at our at this point in history because and this is something I've talked about some on the podcast before, but I'm like endlessly fascinated about the boundaries between personal and professional. I know mm-hmm. you done a, mm-hmm. you do a lot of your work is around women in work. Yes. So, um, but yeah, like that we are a big part of, it's like the personal brand and all yeah. of that and how we're in the past, you know, 20 years ago, even if something like an Instagram or something had existed, it would have been like, well, here's my work thing mm-hmm. and here's my personal thing. Mm-hmm. And it was very separate. And now it's like, at least people of our generation, I think, um, are really wanting to blur those lines more and be more the same per it's like, sure, there's a place where I'm gonna say the word fuck less than I would. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. Sure, there's there's room to be sensitive to the yes. context. Yes. However, I like the idea of being more congruent and and I imagine that's something that you've dealt with too I think you even had a blog post yeah I did I did and for me I have whenever I talk about this particular topic I have to at the outset acknowledge my privilege yes thank you um I am a person that has enough means resources um education that I can make some choices that I realize that not everyone can Mm -hmm. I can turn down a client um for being sexist or an asshole um, I can play a little fast and loose with boundaries between my personal and professional identity um, because I know that if I were to be in a situation where an employer said to me, like, you know, we, we can't have, you know, full bore Liz out there on the internet, <laughs> you know, that's a liability for us, I would say that sucks, but I have the confidence in my skill set that mm-hmm. I could go land another gig. So, like, I just want to point out the fact Absolutely. that when we're talking about this, um, I think the onus is on those of us who do have that um, social capital, financial capital, privilege, whatever you want to call it, to make a little bit of noise about this because there's a lot of women who, you know, rent isn't going to pay itself and kids need lunches and um, can't always make the choices that I'm fortunate that I can make. Yeah. So that's my disclaimer Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but you know, getting back to your question for me, so I, I do a couple different things. I, um, I'm a copywriter and a content strategist. So I, I write people's and businesses websites and I help them build their brand, which I love to do. And I also am a freelance creative and sometimes that involves modeling work. And some of the photo shoots that I've done that I'm super proud of have been for like independent lingerie labels and things like that. Um, like I said earlier, that's a huge source of power in that expression for me. And for a long time, I stressed and I had the very segregated social media accounts. And, you know, within the past couple of years, I just kind of said, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to show the world my everything. Into yeah. Laundry. It's still going to be a curated presence. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm just going to be myself and I'm going to build the personal brand that is more authentic to who I am. Yeah. And what that meant is that I had to take a risk and say, like, okay, um, am I going to lose content writing clients or marketing clients who see that I, you know, I shoot for lingerie brands sometimes, right? And like I said, I'm fortunate to be in a place where I can say, like, if you don't want to hire me because, you know, there's a picture of me in, like, a lace bra on the internet, like, we're we're probably not going to be friends. Like, (laughs) it's probably for the best. Right. Um, So... The cool thing about this is, and I hope this is encouraging to your listeners, but I, when I started being more authentic and not apologizing and making choices that felt true and honest, um, but still safe, you know, I don't post every personal thing yeah. or whatever. Um, it was like the best thing for my business. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's industry specific because like when a brand hires me, like part of what they're hiring me to do is to give them a voice and to help them create a presence. And in, I think in me doing that for myself in a way that people are like, oh, I, I get this girl. Like, I get who she's about. She's got a mouth on her. She has things to say. She yeah. has a lot of opinions. Um, she's got a good eye for design or whatever yeah. style. Like, they felt like I was real and they could maybe know me a little bit. And it's been super awesome for my business. Yeah. So. No, I, I totally agree with that. And, and that's something that, like, 
uh, and I've had other therapists on that we've sort of had some of this conversation around, but like the idea of don't water yourself down because Mm -hmm. there are plenty of other people who might have similar skills, Mm -hmm. but they choose you because they want to work with you and because they feel like they get a sense of who you are and and I am also lucky to be in a field where that's the case for me too. And, and it's awesome. It it's is. Like, oh, I get to be myself. You get to be hired because of, not yeah. in spite of who you are. Yeah. Which is a great feeling. You know, when people reach out to me and it's like, oh my gosh, I wrote, you know, I read what you wrote on Ladies Get Paid or for Salty or some of these publications I've worked with recently um, that have a very, like, strong point of view that could be polarizing. But it's been something that people are drawn to and I'm really grateful to have those partnerships. Yeah. So I'd love to hear more about kind of what it is that you do around women and work. And I know one of those things is that you have co-founded a lean in chapter here, which is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us about that. You know, it kind of started because I was writing all day, every day for somebody else, right? That's what a a writer does. (laughs) And if you pay the bills that way, Um, a lot of times and I realized that I needed you know a space for my own words so I started on my blog writing specifically about some of the challenges I was facing as um, a feminist who is maybe missing her Catholic roots a little bit in the (laughs) south in this professional setting kind of no longer at entry level but you know trying to like get on that c-suite trajectory sort of kind of I realized that I had Um, been struggling with some things that you know my peers were also struggling with and I'm having these conversations so I kind of start writing about my experience sharing resources about women in work Um, and that led me to link up with my friend Danielle and start a lean-in circle that's based in the Gulch doesn't mean you have to live or work in the Gulch to attend but industrious down there gives us free space and they're awesome and so that's um, why it's called that so that's been awesome bringing women in from our community um, to talk to other women about things like money and HR and culture. And so that's something that I'm passionate about. Um, I also do kind of one-on-one salary negotiation training, nice. things like that for women who are interested in leveling up but maybe don't have that skill set. Um, and then I'm also involved in getting a chapter of an organization called Ladies Get Paid off the ground here in Nashville, which is... Um, another more focused on like closing the wage gap uh, women's networking and support groups so I just love finding ways to help women have these kind of conversations writing about it and then like linking them up with resources that help them get ahead or get paid or whatever it is that they want to do I think excuse me there's a lot of avenues to elevate ourselves and to gain more equality I can't cover all of them, but for me, I've found some real growth in elevating myself as a professional and have felt um, strength from that. Mm -hmm. And I want to, that's kind of like my way that I feel like I can help other women achieve the same. Yeah. Love it. Cool. So totally random question. Yes. What are you excited about right now? Oh, well, I, I promised myself that after like a month, on and off of traveling <laughs> this is like a huge problem to have right I was like I'm gonna stay I'm gonna stay put and I actually just booked a plane ticket to go see my sweet friend Natalie in California um after Thanksgiving so I'm excited about seeing the ocean yes but also getting back into yoga I am a inner light yoga girl as you are too and I don't know I think as these days get shorter and um hopefully things slow down a little bit to kind of reconnect to some of my self-care that I've been slacking on (laughs) a little bit so yeah awesome yeah I um have been recognizing recently that I'm like it is such a joy and a privilege to be self-employed oh for sure but when it's like wow I have a really shitty boss right now my boss is being kind of a hard ass (laughs) she's not giving me any time off um like okay I need to work on some things yes (laughs) totally relate totally relate and and I bulk a little bit of like the bath bomb self-care right stuff because for me like I don't think everyone would agree with this but I think for me work sometimes is self-care yeah and I know that I have to work on that balance like everybody like I work a lot but 
I feel so fed when I am getting stuff done and I'm meeting my goals and I'm like meeting new clients and like things are singing like for me that rejuvenates me I can't do it all the time but I think sometimes we're afraid to acknowledge that it's not always a bubble bath sometimes it's closing a deal that feels really good yes no I totally agree with that um, so I just glanced at your arm and I saw I saw a picture of this. So tell us about um, oh, your new little well, guy here on your you wrist. You can't really see it because it's sealed up, but I did get a tattoo yesterday at Sage and Serpent. They're having um, a tiny tattoo Halloween special. How fun. And I don't know. I've just been slowly collecting and they have a new artist there named Hunter and he did this Black Widow spider on my arm, which you can't see because it's all cloudy right now, mm-hmm. but... Um, I super love it because black widows are really misunderstood. Hmm. They are dangerous and can be venomous, but I think um, as women are often misunderstood sexually, (laughs) uh, the black widow spider can be sexually cannibalistic and eat her mate after the fact sometimes. Praying mantis. But it's not something that happens every time, and it's something that's maybe more likely to happen under duress or captivity. Hmm. Wow. So, um, yeah, that's just a little reminder to me. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I only have two tattoos right now and neither of them are like anything super meaningful. I mean, I'm like, I still like them thankfully. Um, but I've had this itch recently to like, and I'm just like, oh boy, if I, if I do, it's like the floodgates are open. Oh, you're telling me, you're telling me, I think that's number six for me. But I will say that I'm really glad that I waited until I was in my thirties to like start getting tattooed because we are a generation that had, there was like some barbed wire and tribal (laughs) tattoos. No offense (laughs) to anybody that has those. Some people I love very much have them, but I like successfully avoided any like, you know, earlier to mid 90s stuff like that yeah so. exactly it's like oh thank god yeah. i still like fairies yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly but they all tell a story you know yeah i don't love every one of my tattoos but i love what they remind me of yeah so so what are you uh watching or listening to recently that you're loving oh f- Guilty pleasure stuff. I have been on a true crime podcast kick for a while. Um, Up and Vanish is really good. Dr. Death is really good. Don't listen to it if you, like, are getting ready to go to the doctor, though. It'll, like, (laughs) ruin your faith in the medical profession. Um, I've been super into that. And I've been kind of, like, cooling it on the Netflix. Yeah. But I have been watching The Deuce on HBO. I don't know if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. that one. It's kind of about um, the birth of... I don't know, um, a more elevated pornography industry Hmm. in New York in the 70s. And um, it's fascinating. Maggie Gyllenhaal's the lead. And she's great. And the fashion is so good, which I don't know what it means that I'm like really drawn to what like ladies of the night were wearing in Times Square in the 1970s. But like, (laughs) it's It's great for you. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) So it's a really good, just kind of like a little time capsule if you're interested in sex and women um, and power. It's uh, it's one I recommend. A little slow, awesome. but it's good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Love it. So, uh, obviously, part of what we're here to talk about is what the fucking point is of any of this. Right. So, what do you think? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me this. <laughs> and, like, the true psychology nerd that I am, to, this morning I was reading uh, some Victor Frankl. Yeah. Man's Search for Meaning. I dusted it off again, and I look at that from time to time. And he was at this section where he was talking about, like, what the, what the meaning of life is. And I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to say later. Clearly, <laughs> this is a great answer. Um, and I didn't fully agree with him because hmm. he was saying, like, you know, kind of like life is not something that happens. It's something that, you know, you have to go kind of do and you have to guide. And as somebody who doesn't fully buy into that because, you know, things happen that we don't always get to control I think there's some some just a few holes in that argument but I think um the wisdom there of the point I guess is to find out for yourself what it is that you want to live by what are your like core values and beliefs and focus on those and try to you know shape your environment in your life in as much as you can by staying true to those things I think a Mm -hmm. lot of time there's for me just has been a lack of congruence between who I am and what I believe and the way that I'm living my life. And I think if there was a point, it would be to move those two things closer together because I find that that's 
when I'm happiest and most at peace is when my insides match my outside. And I think it actually um, creates a greater capacity for us to um, take care of each other when we're doing that for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I often talk about values and how it's that to me, like when we talk about sense of self and identity and like what, what we're here to do, it's like figuring what, out what those are for yourself mm-hmm. and living in alignment with it. Yes. And it's not going to be perfect, but more or less like continuing to steer your ship in that direction mm-hmm. because it's kind of like the measure of the space between that and how you're living is the amount of pain that you're in. Yes. And a lot of times because we get so caught up in just societal or whatever. Yeah. Then um, it's, it's a lot of pain. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, and I think a lot of times women especially um, aren't able to give themselves the permission to even explore what that is. Mm-hmm. And so I think starting there is critical, really. Yeah, and so if you're a woman and you feel like, I don't really know what that is for me, go and pick up a copy of Women Who Run With the Wolves. Yes. Clarissa Pinkola Esther. <laughs> I'm still not even done with it, but it's I've been reading it with a handful of women like really slowly. We're meeting like once a month and kind of oh, talking awesome. about a chapter and it's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just so good. Yeah. So cool. Was there anything that you are working on or want us to know about? Yeah. I, I guess you'll probably link up all this stuff in, in the episode, but if you are a person that's interested in women and work and maybe some more actualized ideas for engaging with the Me Too movement or stuff like that, that's what I really focus on in my work. So I'd love for you guys to check out my website and by all means, give me feedback. I love when people write me and they tell me something resonated or it didn't or ask me questions. I learn a ton when I get to do that. So, um, that would be great. And yeah, if you are local to the Nashville area and you want to meet up and get coffee, I'm always available for that too. And would love to have you come to one of our lean in groups or ladies get paid if that's your jam. Um, love to have you. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find past episodes and show notes at wonderwelltherapy.com slash podcast. We'll take you to the place to find all of that good stuff if you're looking for links or resources or anything else related to the show. Also, if you want to leave a review on iTunes, it helps more people find out about the show. That's bit.ly slash WTFP review. I'll see you next time. And until then, keep asking those big questions.